large numbers of strangers can cooperate successfully by believing in common myths. Any large-scale human cooperation, whether a modern state, a medieval church, an ancient city, or an archaic tribe, is rooted in common myths that exist only in people's collective imagination. Those words were written by the historian and anthropologist Yuval Noah Harari in his 2014 book, Sapiens. The book is marketed as a brief history of humankind and tries to explain much of human history as a series of stories and beliefs. Harari effectively argues that humans conquered the planet by being flexible, cooperative animals, but always operating in a shared belief structure. These beliefs sometimes lead to positive outcomes, sometimes to horrifying outcomes, but always have one thing in common. They offer as flawed a view of reality as the beings that dreamt them up. Humans are imperfect, and our ability to understand the world in fine detail only diminishes as it becomes more complex. This is true in construction as much as anywhere. Even when we bend all of our focus and resources to a task, we still make mistakes. We underestimate problems. And a group of stakeholders that go into a project with the best intentions often end up in the courts. For decades now, the industry has been thinking about ways it can cooperate better to improve its outcomes and to get rid of the toxic competitive mire that it sometimes finds itself in. There have been successes, but compared to other industries, these have been limited. And all the time, projects become more complex, with stricter demands placed on the teams. Perhaps all these years we have been asking the wrong question. We've been wondering about how people working in the construction industry can understand challenges more clearly and so better address them. Perhaps relying on the perceptions of flawed people is the wrong approach entirely, and we should be trying a whole new perspective. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. In this episode, we've partnered with Atkins to look at an unusual digital transformation for construction. When people in the construction industry think of digital, they usually think of a 3D model, a computerised geometrical representation of something that exists in the real world. The subject of this episode isn't that. In fact, remove all ideas about a nice computer image from your mind. They are generated to make things easy for you to understand. And you are flawed, remember? What we're talking about today isn't interested in being easy to understand. Oh, it will help us get better outcomes, fewer cost and time overruns and fewer mistakes. But it will do it in a way that is completely alien from your way of thinking. It operates in such a way that is totally free from human bias and completely ignores geometric realities. This episode is about machine learning and how it's going to solve the broken commercial model of construction. Machine learning, or artificial intelligence, works very much in the same way a human learns. It learns lessons from past data, but on a much quicker, far grander scale and it does it without any prior assumptions. No shared myths or beliefs with the people who programmed it. 
and the things it can tell us about the way we work and how we should work could be profound. In fact, they could change the way we do business as an industry and society forever. We will learn more about machine learning and specifically one program called NPLAN later on. But to fully understand what we are putting the machines up against, we need to quickly recap on the woes that have followed construction for, well, forever. To do that, here's Neil Thompson, Director of Digital Transformation at Atkins. Sharp-eared listeners may remember him from episode 90, The New Way to Plan a City, when he spoke to us about digital twins. We've linked to that episode in the show notes. And he also has his own podcast, The Digital Twin Fan Club. And it's all to do with how we cooperate and the assumptions we make. We've been building things for a very, very long time and creating incentives to for people to build things has been a hot question for, for almost millennia, I guess. Um, but we won't go back that far. I think we'll go far back as the 1940s where there was a report commissioned by Lord Walton called the Simon Report. The Simon Report, also known as the Placing and Management of Building Contracts, was published in 1944 and was the first in a succession of reports criticising the UK construction industry. We've linked to a full list in the show notes. The industry's problems have been tenacious and many of the subsequent reports have revealing titles such as Survey of Problems Before the Construction Industries, the Emerson Report, 1962. Or Interdependence and Uncertainty. The Tavistock Report, 1966. And then we find ourselves in the modern era, with Latham in the early 1990s publishing his famous report focusing on the ideal construction of the team. Engineers study it today, before meeting the real world of competitive contract culture. Then this is built on by the Egan Report, Rethinking Construction. Then we get through to sort of 1998 with the Egan report where you know, we started to think about, so Sir John Egan was originally the chief executive of Jaguar Cars. So he's, he's got this influence of the automotive industry coming in to influence the sort of delivery of construction buildings and, and viewing them from a manufacturing perspective. But what hadn't changed in the background of that is how we you know, the commercial environment, how we do business hasn't changed. So we're starting to think about the reformation of the design process, but we haven't thought about the, the business process. This state of affairs continued into the early 2000s, with really very little actual change to the industry's way of working. But then we move through into when we start reaching the financial crisis back in uh, the great financial crisis of 2008, where we started to see the construction industry change its view in how it's going to help us recover from that economic shock and Andrew Wilsonholm's Never Waste a Good Crisis came out and still started to think about the construction as a production system, but then starts thinking about how do we start bringing improvements around quality, value and creating a collaborative process. It's only in the last decade that the industry began to think about changing its relationship with risk, which is the core of more collaborative working what do we do when things go wrong? So therefore, how do we start drawing up new agreements? I mean, and when we fast forward to today, we have things from the construction innovation hubs, we have the value toolkit, starting to make commercial agreements that are driven around value decision making. Not output decision making, but outcome decision making. 
And the same from Project 13, so the, the 13th project of the Infrastructure Client Group, which looks at infrastructure delivery and how to create, you know, let's think less about the silos of organizations that we pull together to try and deliver infrastructure and how can we turn that into an enterprise model. So that's where sort of we got to today. We, we're thinking about bringing more collaborative commercial models to, to the industry, but our relationship with risk is still the same. It's, we're still trying to it's almost like a hot potato who who wants to to hold this and how, how can we change our culture around risk is where where we are today although some cultures such as norway are less litigious and collaborative culture is easier certainly in the uk the presence of lawyers throughout a project is much more apparent and it can lead to a regressive approach to allocation of risk a term that neil hates the words you said there's allocation I think the fact that we use the word allocations um, quite a negative word. I'm going to allocate, you know, risk is not my problem, it's your problem. I mean, at the end of the day, risk is everybody's problem because if, if something goes wrong on a major piece of infrastructure, the cost of fixing that or the cost of dealing with that issue is rolls back up to the, the buyer always ends up paying for seeing that risk. He prefers risk sharing and thinks that such an approach would be a fundamental change to the way the industry is structured. If we look beneath the, the behaviours that we have in industry, you'll see that there is a culture around using a contract to shield yourself from risk, using a contract to shield yourself from responsibilities in the long run. If we can do it in a way that enables people to be incentivized around, you know, I want to do something about the risks that I uncover, and I should be paid for dealing with them, not the other way around where it's like, oh, I've I recognised it, but it's not part of my contract. I'm not going to deal with it. How do we open that up? Time and time again, there's reviews of construction procurement and we're yet to crack the contract versus culture paradox. In this episode, we'll explore what Atkins and Enplan are doing to help improve this. Misallocation of risk is what happens as a result of not knowing or not having enough intrinsic knowledge inside one's mind to be able to compute where the risk is. Then if you don't know where it is, then of course that's when you're going to misallocate it. This is Dev Amratia. He is the chief executive officer and co-founder of a company called Nplan a startup that hopes to use the abilities of computer analysis of data, machine learning, to change the way construction works forever. So Nplan forecasts construction projects using past data. It looks at schedule data, uh, Gantt charts on what was planned to happen on projects and then what actually happened on those projects. It looks at the variance between a project's original plan and what actually happened. Actually, if I take a step back from that statement, human learning, the way you and I have learned everything we know in life today is that we made an assumption about something and we validated that assumption with reality. So I think this plate is not hot. I touch the plate and it's red and then I get burnt and I realize, oh, well, well, that was means it was hot, right? I've now learned something. And that, that loop is, is fast in that, in that case. If you extrapolate that loop and put it to a construction project, we plan to do a construction project. And we say, we're going to build this, and this is our best assumption based on current information. Then we do build it, and then we learn. We're like, oh, well, 
what we thought was not true. So now I've learned I'll go and not make the same mistake twice. And that, in short, is the general knowledge method of human learning. What NPLAN does is we accelerate that process by saying, let's just let a machine, an algorithm, go and learn how all of the past projects perform so that it can tell us what might happen to this next project. This is machine learning. It is a field that Dev has spent much of his career working in. In fact, he used to give presentations on this for Her Majesty's government. So he's the perfect man to give a quick lesson. Machine learning is, in definitional terms, a subset of artificial intelligence. It is basically when a machine or a system or a set of algorithms is capable of improving its output based on continually variable inputs. That means you keep showing it photographs of dogs and it gets better at spotting dogs, right? You don't have to manually show it how to get better. It just intrinsically does so from the nature of its design and it can get better fast. When you talk about machine learning as being a subset and then you expand that set, you're effectively now saying that what this thing is capable of doing is handling multiple inputs across a changing middle state to changing outputs. Which means something interesting for the output, a way to assess the intelligence of the system. So for example, in that photographs of dogs thing, it's not particularly intelligent to tell a human being something it already knows. If I tell you this is a photograph of a dog, you're like, okay, thank you. Um, you know, I, I could have figured that out myself. Um, you're not particularly intelligent for doing that. But if I could look at the photograph and tell you that inside this photograph are 500 things that you would never know about and recommend how you should then do something with that information beyond the state space of that photograph, I am intelligent, right? That's an intelligent action that I'm delivering to oneself. So the, that, that's perhaps one way you can think of it. There are many, many ways you could think of this as well, uh, but I, I like the way of thinking about an ever learning being, right? It's a thing that doesn't stop learning. The more, more inputs you throw at it, the better it gets. It just doesn't, it doesn't become bored. It doesn't become tired. It doesn't become saturated. It just keeps going and going and going and gets better and better with time. So for NPLAN specifically, Dev has received data from about 70% of major UK infrastructure projects in recent years and has been feeding the schedule files, both projected and as built, into his system. At first, it was difficult to convince people to part with their data, but a notable first was Costain, which gifted all of its historical data to NPLAN, and then the data donations became more frequent. NPLAN has processed this data, it's learned, and it's ready for more. It's actually dead simple, so dead simple that people like raise their eyebrow when I tell them this. All that has to go in is the existing schedule file that was used to plan the project. So you will be creating a schedule file whether you want to use NPLAN or not. It's just sort of part of all contracts and part of good project management is you create a project schedule. Upload that to NPLAN and we will I guess, air quotes, criticize it. And from this, the system will produce a kind of pecking order of critique, 
assessing your chances from past industry experience of achieving your targets. You start at the top level, which is like, what's the chance you're going to finish this project to the time you think? And then what's the most probable duration you will actually spend on this project? And that's always a range. Then you go underneath it, you start breaking down the project and you start saying, well, where does that risk actually exist? Is it that you're going to have all the risk in the back end of the project when you're doing the testing and commissioning? And then if that's the case, then you dig even further. Well, what in testing and commissioning is causing all that risk? You're like, oh, there's this signal tests that we have to do repeatedly. This is an example from a real project. Across these signal tests, the, the majority of the risks, it's there. At that point, you've basically told them where the needle in the haystack lives, right? You've said the haystack is the project and the needle is the signal test. Then the project team have to sit down and decide how to mitigate it. Then the plan can be run back through the artificial intelligence to see if another problem has sprung up or if a risk has been mitigated cleanly. I would also just add, um, we've just, just to our first client, launched a brand new feature which is super exciting from a technology point of view because it's insanely hard to create which is explainability and recommendations so a big question we used to get asked is okay you're saying that that's a risk why is that a risk what's causing that to be a risk because seldom would a human would an engineer especially just say oh Okay, because the machine told me it's a risk, it must be a risk. I, I promise you very few engineers actually accept that. And most of our crowd are engineers uh, and very analytical. So we've now produced machine learning code that can explain itself. And that's groundbreaking in not just the construction industry, it's a groundbreaking in any industry, full stop. Machine learning explainability is a massive deal in the AI sector. And to say that we've we've broken ground into this space into you know where there's millions of things that could be causing the prediction to go in a certain way and the machine now can can somewhat correlate it through a deep learning algorithm that's one the second awesome feature that is that also just got launched is recommendations now this one is a tricky one because what we try and do is inspire the team the project team of like here's how what here's how you could solve your problem, but actually, if I'm honest, the only reason we do that is to get them to have an argument with it. We're like, oh, that's a dumb idea. This is a way better idea. They're like, brilliant. Just do what you think. Right? It's not. We don't. We don't really mind what you what you do to resolve the risk. Just do something. Uh, it's more of like a conversation starter type uh, drop. And so those two things are are very very new machine learning features that that. Uh, we were able to, to to push out. Really, at the end of the day, all we care about is that you, a client, takes action. And do something with this information, please. There will always be disagreements over how to define or measure a risk, but there's one way that such a system can be tested completely free from human opinion and bias. Assessing completed projects. You upload the schedule files from the start of a now-completed project and ask NPLAN to warn you about impending risks. Question becomes, did NPLAN forecast it correctly? Yes or no? You know, it's fairly binary at that point. You go down into the details, into this subject called precision and recall. So how many of the things that actually materialized as risk and caused delay on the project did NPLAN spot? And, and that number is, you know, 
it, it varies project to project, of course, but on average, that number is 77% of the things that do occur, we would have said to the project team in advance. And then you try and put a dollar amount to that number and it becomes a little silly. There are always different things flagged for each project. It's not about something the industry is necessarily doing wrong every time. Although Dev says that they can often detect a rush, the idea that if you miss something but are sure you can catch up later on. Those famous words, I will catch up later on, uh, we can detect what is the likelihood that you actually will or will not catch up and detect in advance of time if you're making the wrong types of steps. The value of machine learning to contractors is a clear view of the risk of their project plan and a picture of where the risk sits. The value to a project owner might be assessing whether the contractor has a chance of finishing the project on time and on budget. It goes some way towards removing the need for trust in individuals. The industry's decades of experience are no longer filtered through human perception. In other words, numbers don't lie. Contractual risk, modelling, how much a company's potentially in the red for. Every senior and commercial director at every company and at every project will have spent sleepless nights over these things. But the directors also think about the culture of the company, the project, how the team works together. They have additional focuses to those held by most people that work on an infrastructure project. And Dev's company attracted one of them. Beth West has joined Enplan as a senior strategic advisor. I really started in the infrastructure sector on the financing side. So I was a, a project finance banker for about eight years, working on um, major project, major power plants in particular, a little bit of oil and gas, a little bit of telecoms in the um, crazy heyday of mobile phones really taking off, but, but also in the on the power side when deregulation was going on across, across the world and, and there were a lot of independent power plants that were being developed. Then Beth moved into Transport for London, looking at the big capital contracts on the underground and leading the procurement team. That was everything from, from PPE and, and you know, making sure your high-vis was right and all the way into the big you know, buying trains. And then finished there in a, as the commercial director of, of Tube Lines, which was the last public-private partnership that was, and it was brought back in-house. And then moved over to HS2, where I was commercial director. And this was where she started thinking about innovation within the industry and making sure that these were the organisations that suppliers wanted to work for. I saw, starting at the underground and moving into HS2, seeing a load of behaviours that are really not very pleasant for anyone. Most people don't like to, to sort of shout across the table at people all day long. And, and that's, you know, so much of what you get in the construction industry. And, and I spent a lot of time trying to unpick and understand why things are the way they are in the industry, because it, it's not like most other industries. Beth says that around this time, five years ago, she came to the conclusion that the way the industry procures things doesn't work. The entire way in which we procure things doesn't get the outcomes that we, we think we want. And maybe they, they are the outcomes that we, we want, but it creates a culture where there are toxic work environments. You, you've got a lot of negative, negative outcomes from the behaviours that we have. Mental health problems, a lack of diversity, skilled workers leaving the industry. But that toxic environment is very much driven by, a lot of the times, the way in which things are procured. And it's been historically very tactical. It's not driven on relationships. It's driven very much by, in many times, lowest cost. And so, 
low margins. And if you have any problems or errors, that's when you start to get into the fights with the, with the clients. And so it descends into each party pulling in its own direction, a confrontational environment the moment things go wrong. And it's just a bit of a vicious cycle, circle where, where you have everybody behaving in, in really unpalatable and somewhat toxic ways, which starts from the procurement process. And you know, so that's the client, the, the client's procurement process isn't getting them the outcomes they want. The consultants that are often hired are designing something which sometimes can't even be built because they haven't asked anybody about the buildability of that. Then that goes to be procured. It's very often a very competitive market. So margins are really, really low. And then when you go into contract, the expectation is that you're going to make it up through variations. So you get into this behavior of, of always trying to put stuff back on the client so that you can get your margins up. And then you, and then the consultants are there trying to say, no, you can't possibly have that, which it may or may not be a justifiable variation. And, and it just tends to be a, you know, a really conflicting, you know, perpetually clashing with each other kind of environment, which still gets buildings that leak, poor quality outcomes, long, long final accounts, the settlements. So it's not like this really unpleasant bit of behavior is getting you a good product either. But with a clearer view into whether a project plan is likely to be successful from the start, where the risk lies, there are fewer unpleasant surprises. More appropriately shared risk helps remove a major reason for the development of this toxic environment. Beth says that this idea of clearly learning from past experience resonated with her and is what appealed to her to begin with. If I'm trying to do something, I always go to, well, surely someone else has done this before. I surely cannot be the first person on the planet who is doing X. So I try to go and do a load of research before I embark on whatever it is that I'm doing because I, I, I don't want to do it just based on my own experience, my own knowledge. I just think that... that as, as, much as, I, as much as I have now, because I'm really old, I, I don't have the world of experience to, to back up what I'm doing. So I want to know what other people have done. Every major organisation does a lessons learned exercise at the end of a project, but these have not necessarily been utilised by other organisations working on other projects. It's very rare that you tap back into those lessons learned when you're doing the next one, unless it's you've moved that, that team along. So you're you're not there's not a systematic way to absorb the lessons learned effectively enough the machine learning is a way in which you get some of the, a load of those lessons learned without having to go trawl back through a database and read the read the notes in the excel excel spreadsheet that people have written down 5 years ago NPlan is a useful tool, and Dev certainly thinks it will become a standard method of assurance industry-wide within five years. But the effect this could have on the commercial model and contracts could go even further, and the impact on the culture that Beth mentioned could go further still. NPlan and Atkins are working together on a research project to look at the future of contracting in the industry. The way contracting models currently work is broken and archaic and doesn't do any favours to anyone. We now have data that says how projects are going to turn out. How could we use that to make sure we set up contracts better so that all the parties win? Hi, my name is Tom Goldsmith. I'm a structural engineer. 
and advocate for digital transformation within our industry. And I sit within Atkins infrastructure business here in the UK. Tom is the research and engagement lead for this project. Looking at the end plan technology and exploring how projects, how we can use that in a delivery context and what the implications are for the commercial models we deliver under. So what new commercial models might Enplan enable? How do our commercial models need to adapt in order to, to make best use of Enplan and, and maximize the benefits of that digital technology? He says that a primary reason things have taken so long to change is the way that owners procure work isn't necessarily appropriate for the work that actually needs to be delivered. This might be from unclear scope or a lack of definition of what's being delivered. But ultimately, the key thing that underpins a lot of this is that if there is misalignment between suppliers and clients and parties interests with the contract and people aren't all on the same page in terms of what's being delivered and where the value is for everyone then you will see parties inevitably acting in their own interests and that's the key thing we've got to try and attack here to try and get everyone working on the same page and pulling in the same direction which isn't an easy problem to challenge problem to tackle the productivity issues dogging construction have been highlighted in the reports we heard about earlier in the episode. But Tom says that now is an exciting time to be tackling the issue, precisely because of these new technologies and the new visibility into projects and project health. The research project is centred around Network Rail's Gatwick station refurbishment. There are two things we're hoping to tackle with Network Rail. The first one is what are the the benefits of using Mplan. In, in this instance, we're looking very specifically at the, the change management process. So what are the benefits of using Mplan in a change management context for network rail, for their suppliers? How can we start to quantify some of those? And then looking a bit more broadly, what are the gaps in our capabilities or knowledge or specifically relating to this research, our contractual positions that we need to correct in order to enable or facilitate some of those benefits. Yeah, so I think Network Rail as a, as a, as a client and as a kind of asset owner in this space are wanting to think differently about how they use technology. Obviously, they deliver projects week in, week out across the year. This is Matthew Jeffries, a digital transformation lead at Atkins. Because of the environment that they work in, a lot of the projects they deliver are subject to change, they're subject to tight restrictions with possessions, things like that. So they have a real desire to do more with technology and more with data to provide a better level of certainty and um, clarity around the projects that they're, they're delivering. So when we approach them to kind of partner with us on this, they're, they're the kind of the draw to it for them was being able to research in this space, you know, to test some ideas that we've come up with, test the technology that was quite exciting. And the next step for Network Rail, if the project is a success, is to see how they could scale the use of this technology more widely and see what approaches can follow. And for Matthew, an engaged client on this scale holds exciting opportunities for rollout into the industry. If we look at the industry-wide reaction we've had, I think the it's been generally really positive. I think people are excited about the investment that we're making in this space and the investment that UK government is making in this space. I think it shows that we're, you know, we're, we are trying to think differently about the contractual and commercial space, which is very traditional. It's, it's been quite stagnant, I would say. And even today, there is still some conservatism for any new technology, any new approach. There's definitely a 
element of um, nervousness around adopting a new technology, adopting a new approach to how they've done things for years. And so that's why selecting a kind of progressive opportunity to go with has, has been really important. We want that collaborative environment to be able to innovate in. But we completely understand that, look, you know, we're delivering major projects. There is a, an end date, there is a cost to hit. So there are challenges that they face. So what we want to do is build up a kind of evidence library, if you like, of the value that this brings, the investment that it requires and what you get at the end of it. So that it makes more, you know, it makes scaling more of an option for us once, once we go past this project. Another case where data helps trust and collaboration. Exactly, yeah. Numbers talk, right? So that's, that's what we need. And Matt sees the main impact being at the delivery level of projects. In five years' time, I hope that the outputs of this project will be taken as a learning experience for, for major projects across the industry as a, look, let's use this technology and this learning to improve our relationship across the supply chain, use the data intelligently in, in how we plan to deliver the project and set up commercial models that support that approach rather than setting up an environment that no one really wants to collaborate in or innovate in or, or be honest in. You know, we, we want to break that down and stand up an environment that the supply chain, the client, the contractor can all work in and collaborate in together to ultimately deliver a, a really transformative piece of infrastructure that will improve society and everything that comes with that. And that's the environment that we hope this, this project will, will create for the industry. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson. Series Supervision by John Young and our own dispassionate algorithm is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner Atkins and also to Nplan. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn.